Well, we are continuing today with our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. When we met last week, we met a man named Nehemiah. And we saw that Nehemiah was, in fact, uh, when we came across him, living in the lap of luxury. He was living in a land called Susa, a citadel. It was, as I mentioned last week, the winter retreat for Persian kings. And he was King Artaxerxes' cupbearer. He really was probably in, in about the best position, uh, monetarily speaking and, and comfort level speaking, that, that there could have been in those days. And, and yet he received word from his brother and from other men who had come from Jerusalem that Jerusalem was in trouble that the people were in trouble, that they were facing hardship and pain and uh, derision, and that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down and its gates burned. And after essentially crumbling from that news and, and praying and fasting, he went before King Artaxerxes to ask him for something that was basically impossible that Artaxerxes would let him, the cupbearer, his most trusted right hand man, go down to Jerusalem and help the people there repair the walls and the gates that, frankly, Artaxerxes had ordered to be stopped. And yet, when we finished our text last week, we saw in chapter 2, verse 8, it's, Nehemiah says, the, the king granted me what I asked. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. Well, our text today is uh, taking right off from that, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, and we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 32, basically the end of chapter 3. I'm not going to read chapter 3 yet. I'll read that later, um, uh, and you'll see why. But for now, we will begin uh, with Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, and we will go to the end. Here's the word of the Lord. It says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, with, uh, who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? 
Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So we'll stop there. You can see that the king obviously allows Nehemiah to head back to Jerusalem. And, And what we see right away is that Nehemiah arrives in town with two things given to him by the king. He arrives in town with papers from the king, official letters with the king's signature and stamp and all of that on it, saying this work is to be allowed. And he also arrives with an armed escort of horsemen and and guards. And one of the things that, you know, we probably see here is that given that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, the king wanted him protected. The king wasn't sending him away to get killed. And so he protected him with these armed guards. Now, you might remember, and I mentioned this a few sermons ago when we looked at Ezra coming into town, that Ezra could have gotten the armed guards as well. He, in fact, was in the royal court, and yet he didn't ask for it. Now, again, it may be that that Artaxerxes didn't care that much if he lost Ezra, whereas he probably did care a lot more that he lost Nehemiah. However, if you recall, Ezra didn't have the armed guards and said, I'm not going to get the armed guards, the military escort, because the hand of my God is on me. Now, it's interesting that Nehemiah says the same thing. Nehemiah says, the good hand of my God is on me, and so I'm going to accept the military escort. And I mentioned this in the, in the Sermon on Ezra, but I just want to kind of talk about that a little bit now because it, it may be that we think one is right and the other is wrong. It's the same trip. It's the same king. It's the same military escort. One didn't get it, one did, and they both say that the hand of their God is on them. And what I want us to see is that neither is right and neither is wrong. You see, Ezra sees God's hand of protection working through the absence of military protection. And Nehemiah sees God's hand of protection working through the provision of the military uh, escort. In other words, the same God works sovereignly both times. God uses different means to achieve his sovereign end. We see it all throughout scripture. We see in scripture many, many times where God does something kind of miraculously huge, something that anyone would look at and say, that seems to defy the laws of physics. For instance, when God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go across, or he made an axe head float, or a donkey talk, or sent fire down on Mount Carmel. Over and over again, we see God accomplishing his will through incredibly miraculous means. But then other times in scripture, in fact, I would argue that perhaps the book that sort of most has at its core God sovereignly orchestrating everything is the book of Esther. And Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God in the entire book. And yet after you read that story, you are more convinced that God was in control of this whole thing than maybe at any other book of scripture. And I... I think it's important for us to understand this because, you know, if we, 
I think we tend to do the same thing. If, if we get on a, a, a plane and we go on a business trip somewhere and it, both engines give out and a wing breaks off and yet somehow the pilot navigates us down and we land safely, we get off the plane and for one thing the entire time he was bringing us down we were probably praying and then we get off the plane and then we tell everyone back home how good God was to us, how God was good to us, how he, he got me here safely. You wouldn't believe all the things that God did to get me here safely. And yet, we take the same business trip, nothing happens. We land, we get the Uber ride to the hotel, we check in, and we don't tell anyone that God got us there safely. The fact of the matter is, God did both. Whether nothing out of the ordinary happened or whether you got there by some miraculous means, God was sovereignly getting you where you needed to go. You see, God can either bring you out of an operation by both removing the tumor miraculously before you even go in or through the wisdom of the doctors that remove the tumor. Either way, it's God. And that's one of the things I... We see right here from the beginning that, that Nehemiah accepts this military escort, but it in no way takes away the fact that God's hand is on Nehemiah and leading him down to do what he's doing. Now, when he gets there, in verses 11 through 16, he assesses the damage that, frankly, sin has caused. When you go back to it all the way from the beginning, uh, why was Israel and Jerusalem destroyed in the first place because Israel sinned against God. And so Nehemiah sees really what is a sad sight. Well, the first thing he does is he rests for three days. I'm assuming he's probably, being the man of prayer that he is, praying for three days. And then we see this night ride. He goes out at night. He doesn't tell anyone what he's doing. He rides on a single animal, probably a donkey, uh, scholars believe, because they were a lot more silent than horses. And Nehemiah goes out secretly at night to assess the damage to the wall. Now, take your bulletin, and uh, we're usually pretty low tech around here, but I do have something for us today. So take your bulletin out, and um, you'll see, back towards the notes, a wall. A diagram of a wall. Now, we're gonna, I want you to look at this diagram and follow along when I go and read in chapter 3. But for now, notice that kind of dotted line there at the bottom that goes around and then the arrow that goes in. You can see that that dotted line is Nehemiah's night ride. So you can see he tells you exactly where he goes in this night ride. He, he begins at the valley gate. And then he says he, he goes to the dragon spring and then down to the dung gate, which is all the way down there at the bottom. And then he goes around, and once he gets into that area, in kind of right there, he has to continue on foot because his donkey can't continue in that area. He had to get off and go on foot. Now, why did he have to, why couldn't the donkey, uh, why was there no room for the animal that was under him to pass is how he puts it. Well, scholars say that probably what, and this is, makes it even more, you know, again, sad, 
is scholars believe that, that probably what that is is a huge pile of rubble left right there from Nebuchadnezzar's invasion 150 years earlier, which means that this destruction has been there for 150 years untouched and unhelped. That, that they have a reminder every day surrounding the temple of their sin and of what Nebuchadnezzar did because of God's judgment. Now I asked myself as, as Nehemiah took this night ride, what were his emotions like? Again, I mentioned last week, this, this man's a human being. He's in that sense no different from the rest of us. When he heard that Jerusalem had been destroyed, that the walls had been destroyed, its gates burned by fire, uh, he fell down and wept for days. As he rides out and looks at the extent of the damage, looks at the damage everywhere he goes, the fact that some of this hasn't been fixed in 150 years and is so bad his donkey can't even make the trek. What, what was he like? I don't know. Was he calm and businesslike? Had, had his weeping stopped? Was he just a man on a mission now? Or, or was he weeping the entire time he looked? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but either way, what this night ride did was it gave him the opportunity to inspect the extent of the damage, and the problem was monumental. J.I. Packer talks about the huge job. He says the particular work to which God had called Nehemiah was to get Jerusalem's ruined walls rebuilt, and this was a huge job. The circuit of the walls was more than a mile And the new wall needed to be three or four feet thick, more perhaps at ground level, and 15 to 20 feet high. Rebuilding would be a massive operation, only possible if tackled as a grand-scale cooperative enterprise. So he understood that. Once he saw the extent of the damage, he knew that the only way this wall is going to be rebuilt is if everyone chipped in to do it. He certainly wasn't going to do it himself. Now, in verses 17 to 18, you see that Nehemiah points out the damage. I found that very interesting. Notice that he finally lets everyone in on his mission, and he explicitly points out to the people the damage. He he says to them, look, do you see the trouble we're in? Do you see how Jerusalem lays in ruins? Do you see how its gates are burned? And I asked myself as I read that, did, had they not seen it before? What, is he giving them new information? I mean, Nehemiah has just arrived. These people have been living there for a while now, and he's pointing out to them the destruction. Well, of course they've seen it. They're not blind They passed by it every day of their lives. They lived in the shadow of the destruction that stared at them every day, reminding them every day of how badly they had sinned against God and how God had judged them for it. Of course, they had seen it. They had seen it for a long time. It's it's not that they hadn't been looking at it. I think it's that They had either grown used to it 
or they figured there was nothing that could be done about it. After all, I mean, if you think about it, the problem was far beyond any of them. It, it was not only the destruction caused by a king 150 years earlier, but it was fresh destruction caused by that recent stoppage sent by Artaxerxes. <coughs> Notice that Nehemiah doesn't pretend the problem isn't as bad as it is. He points it out. He points it out in all its ugliness. But notice, too, how he then again, as I mentioned last week, he enters into the problem as though it was his own problem. Look at, look at how he talks. He points to the rubble, and rather than say, do you see the problem that you have? Look, I'm just an advisor. I came here to assess the problem. I'm going to write you up a 10-point plan, and then I'm back on my horse to go back to Susa. You guys have to deal with this. It's your problem. I wasn't involved. I've been away. I had nothing to do with this. I was living in Susa. I wasn't a part of this invasion. I wasn't here 150 years ago. You take care of it. He doesn't say that. Look at, look at what he says. Do you see the trouble we are in? Let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. He wasn't suffering any derision. He was living in the king's palace. Nobody was taunting him. Nehemiah places himself into the problem as though it was his own, and then he gives them, I think, something that most of them had never felt before or heard before. He gives them hope. Hope that this thing can be remedied. You see, what made him different than anyone else? Maybe other people in the past had said, man, we ought to, we ought to fix that wall someday. You know, maybe somebody had said something. You know, we ought to try to get some guys together and, you know, maybe they showed up one day and started picking up a couple rocks and said, forget it. Why was Nehemiah different? Well, first of all, notice what he says. The first thing he says is, is that God is at the center of all of this. He says to them, God has sent me here to do this. He places God at the center of, of what's about to happen. But I think the, the, the second thing is equally important. He tells them of the words that King Artaxerxes had said. He shows them the papers from King Artaxerxes. He says, the king of the world right now that I was cupbearer to has sent me down for this very reason. Now, why is that important? Is it because God needs the help of human kings? No. It's because they didn't know Nehemiah. He showed up on the scene. He was an outsider. Who is this guy? He shows up on the scene and says, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to build this wall. Well, anybody can make claims to be sent from God, but he shows them the evidence that he was sent from God to do this very thing. And once he does that, look at the reaction that true hope brings with it. Look at verse 18. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. I showed them the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build. 
so they strengthen their hands for the good work. Now, you see here in our text that there is a, an equal and opposite reaction of opposition from these guys. We're going to look at that next week, because next week's chapter is all about the opposition. For now, I want us to see what happens when this wall is repaired. So we're going to look at chapter 3. Now, I saved chapter 3 till now <clears throat> because I want you to, while I read chapter 3, look at this picture and follow along. Because when I read it, you will see, as you follow along, that Nehemiah basically talks about this repairing that goes on from a counterclockwise direction. And if you just look at the places on this wall that I read, you can follow along and see where every person repairs every section of this wall as I read. And just picture for yourself that these names aren't weird. <clears throat> now, if I get through this without messing up these names, it's going to be a miracle. I will mess them up. But just picture in your mind that I'm reading Bob and Bill and Charlie and Eric Michael and Jeff Rendell and, you know, just go on. Picture the people here. They're average people that get together and do this work. Okay, I'm going to read chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yesana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramphah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashaniah, repaired. Malkajah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanun. And, and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kalhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. 
He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Heshub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress to the corner. Palal, the son of Ozai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshelam, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. <clears throat> Just think about this group of people. The first one listed was the high priest. The high priest was the first one to step up to the plate, he and his family. Interestingly, this high priest was the grandson of Jeshua, the high priest who was there when they rebuilt Solomon's temple back in the beginning of Ezra. But look at this group of people. There, there were goldsmiths, perfumers. There was a, a man and his daughters all chipping in. Not one bricklayer is mentioned. Not one mason is mentioned. Not one architect is mentioned. These were all ordinary people doing a thankless, mundane job. A lot of them doing beneath them work. Nehemiah's mission ended up giving hope to ordinary people from all walks of life. It's interesting, some of these are professionals. Some of them are merchants. Some of them are businessmen. Others are not. Again, you just see from all walks of life, but they're all given hope. They're all given a mission, and they all work side by side to build this wall. 
One scholar says this, I liked this quote. The point is that all kinds of people participated. Some of those named were evidently influential. Each worked literally by the side of the next. That's the phrase that keeps coming up, by the side of the next person. Apparently, they worked by the side of without rivalry, without envy. If there were differences of wealth and standing, and there are hints that there were some, they do not appear here. The only distinction recognized is that of belonging to the people of God and being engaged in his business. See, they all went out and they all used whatever gifts they had to help build the wall. Not any of them did anything, as you see in here, very flashy. And yet, what's so amazing is that every one of their names is in here. They all joined in. To us, they're nobody, but their names are in God's book for all eternity. And one thing that really stands out, Nehemiah's name is not even listed. There is a Nehemiah, but it's not him. It's a different Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one most to be thanked for the building of this wall. He is the one that most put his life on the line, that most went into this and organized the whole thing. He is the one whose name is kind of all over the wall, and yet his name is not mentioned as one of the builders. See, Nehemiah is, again, such a picture of our Lord Jesus. Nehemiah left the side of the king, as I mentioned last week. It was Jesus who left his father's side. It was Jesus who, as Nehemiah, entered into our sin and misery and trouble. It was Jesus who, when he arrived, assessed the damage that sin had wrought. You know, we get a picture oftentimes in, in movies that, that Jesus lived some kind of life almost like a stoic. He, a lot of times he's, he's uh, depicted as someone who had no emotion. And yet scripture tells us that he was a man of sorrows, that he was well acquainted with grief. Scripture tells us that while he walked this earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And it was Jesus who, when he arrived, pointed out the depth of our sin. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount if you want to see how guilty we are. Jesus came and, and he said, do you see the trouble you're in? Do you see how this world, how your lives lie in ruins? Do you see how the gates are burned? Didn't we see it before he arrived? Of course. We saw it every day. We live in the shadow of our sin. It stares at us every day in the broken lives and in all of the things that we do personally wrong every day. We pass by it every day. It stares at us every day. Of course we see it and reminds us how much we have sinned against our God. It's not that we haven't been looking at it. It's probably that we have either grown used to it or we figure there's nothing that can be done about it. See, our problem is huge. 
it's not just that we currently sin, but that we are dealing with the ramifications of the sin of our first ancestor. You see, Jesus doesn't just point to the problem. He enters into it as though that problem was his own problem. He doesn't give us a list of 10 things to help ourselves out and then go back up to heaven. And he gives us something that we, in all of human history, had never had. He gives us hope that this insurmountable problem can finally be fixed. What made him different from anyone else? Haven't there been people all throughout history that have tried to solve the world's problems? Yeah. But he came and said he came from God. And then he gave us the evidence to back up his claim. And when he did so, he called some of us out of this fallen world to be his people. A ragtag group. It's called the church. And we have the honor of participating in whatever small way we can. Ordinary people doing mundane thankless, often beneath us work. Some of us businessmen, some of us merchants, some of us professionals, others of us not, many of us children. The only distinction recognized in the church or should be is that of belonging to the people of God and being engaged in his business. Brothers and sisters, the church is messy. It is full of a ragtag group of ordinary people, and yet the church is the most amazing thing that God has ever built on this earth. And you, Christian, get to be a small part of it. And even though... Your names are not going to be remembered by people thousands of years from now. Every single one of your names is written in the Lamb's Book of Life for all eternity. The church is built on the foundation of Christ, the chief cornerstone. And yet, it sure seems like everything that our Lord did was completely and utterly selfless. Scripture says, and I'll close with this, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us this morning of the wonderful gift that we have in Christ. Thank you for reminding us of what he did to build his church. 
And thank you, Father, for giving us the privilege to serve in your church in ordinary ways and yet having the privilege to build your kingdom under the Lordship of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would impress that upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen.